space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. This is the record of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission to observe Trek from outside existence, to the Big Bang, to the end of the universe and all existence. To seek out every second and contemplate every eon. To do what no same entity has ever done before. Hello and welcome back to the Temporal Trek podcast. We're in Season 1, Part 2, Episode 3B, as we continue with Stormfront, this time Part 2. As you just heard, we left off as Vosk was inspecting his time machine, so we're going to pick up right where we left off. We begin in Stormfront Part 2 as we see a newsreel, uh, a fantastic bit of footage. I really like how it's all edited together uh, to show us sort of World War II footage as if Hitler had reached American shores. Unlike the previous episode where I was pointing out some of the flaws in the special effects. Although, yes, it's fairly noticeable, especially at the point where you see Hitler looking onto the Statue of Liberty, it's impressive to see them put the, the footage together so well. There's a really clever line in there as well. Because it is a propaganda piece, it's clearly trying to show that America and Nazi Germany can work together. There's a part where it talks about the American establishment, the American... I guess the conspiratorial, collaborative government will rid America of its parasitic elements. It's such a, a small phrase, it's such a, an understated phrase, but we clearly know when we've looked at history what that really means. The undesirables, as the Nazi party used to call it, the people that they didn't want in their society, uh, people who are disabled, people of different colour. That's particularly the, the uh, group that is dealt with in this episode when they're talking about the way that uh, Nazi Germany is impacting American society. They are taking people of different ethnicity and taking them away. We then end at 2 minutes and 12 seconds, ready for the credit sequence. Again, not going to go into detail here. I'll wait until we get to Enterprise properly to go into that. We come back at 3 minutes 30 seconds. We've got another meeting between the Nazi commandant and uh, Vosk. Now it's become clear that Vosk is being spied upon and the commandant is trying to uh, stamp his authority. He's standing in front of the map again and this time we are seeing a clear battle line from Cleveland all the way down to South Carolina. As we saw before, but it was only a fleeting glimpse, but now we can clearly see it. Now Cleveland will come up, especially in our next episode. Despite all the problems I had with uh, the makeup being too on the nose with these aliens, uh, the sort of vampiric look of these aliens, um, I do like how calm the villain is. He never raises his voice. Um, I, I forget which actor it is, but there, it's a movie actor. I think it might be uh, Robert De Niro who, who talks about as soon as a villain raises his voice, he has lost the argument, he has lost the fight. By not raising your voice, by being very calm and very considered in everything you say, it makes the villain so much more scary, so much more imposing, uh, more powerful, effectively. There's a lot of back and forth between them, and it's just a, a jostle for power. They are trying to outwit each other, but ultimately Vosk holds all the cards. He talks about, you fight for nations, we eliminate all worlds in time. He does say something very odd as well though. In the threat he says, 
your race could last a million years. Now, that's a little callback to the thousand-year Reich that Hitler used to speak of, uh, the idea that uh, the Aryan Empire would, would last long beyond the 1940s. He says a million years, and it's almost a direct insult. But he's talking about how they would never even come close, human race would never even come close to the achievements of Vosk. So it's difficult to tell whether he means that his race is from that far in the future. It's unlikely, given what we already know about Daniels and the Cold War. But I think he, it's a slight exaggeration. But it's interesting to think, you know, does he really think that perhaps... Nazi Germany, even though it's industrious, even though it could push itself forward, it would never have got to the point of, say, space travel in the same vein as Vosk is, because it is a flawed system, because it would implode on itself. Perhaps it's a direct criticism of Nazi Germany, not necessarily humanity. He does make one other threat. Uh, it talks about erasing people from existence. Now, as we've now, as I've discussed in previous episodes, you can't erase time. By going back in time, you change things. Certainly, you create divergent timelines, but you never erase something from existence. You would simply change its existence to something else. The old adage, you know, go back and assassinate Hitler as a baby. Well, you could do that. You have not erased him from existence. You've erased him from that timeline. He still exists in a different divergent timeline. That is why I feel that this is an empty threat by Vosk. But I think he's trying to play on the idea that the Commandant wouldn't realise that. It sounds scary, but when you really think about what he's promising, it's not necessarily filled with truth. Back on the Enterprise, we see that Alicia has been given the quarters of a crew member who died in the previous Zindi War arc. There's a lovely little dialogue between the two characters, in fact, where she talks about that there is still war in the future. And the archer says, you know, it's still hopeful. Human beings don't fight amongst themselves, but there are other cultures that don't share our values. And that's been always one of the key points about Star Trek, that one of the reasons I love it, is that the key difference is it's not utopia. It's not perfect in the future, but it is better We've got to the point where our internal differences as humanity hasn't defined us. But there is still conflict. There are still struggles. Not everything is solved at this point. Alicia does say, you know, you've got all of the power of the Enterprise. Wipe Berlin off the map. Completely destroy this. And considering it's a divergent timeline, you'd think that perhaps Archer, as a slightly more impulsive captain as we're used to seeing in Star Trek, might consider that option but he doesn't. He's had three seasons of development, uh, an arc to season the captain, and he doesn't take that option. He says he wants to find a better way, effectively a smarter way. And I think that's one of the reasons why later season Archer is my more preferred Archer to early seasons. Because he's been out in space long enough, he's made these tough calls he now realises maybe there is a better way to go about your business. That scene then ends with um, a nice little uh, aside about the transporter. Alicia asks, how does it work? Uh, but then she immediately regrets that decision and says, actually, I'd rather not know. Damn it. I wish we could find out. Back down on Earth, Vosk is talking with another one of the aliens, one of the scientists. 
and they're putting together that actually the Enterprise and Archer and its presence there is not necessarily the work of temporal agents, that they are a different player that's possibly been brought in by the temporal agents, but they are not temporal agents themselves. And Vosk has a little line in there where he says that even he doesn't trust the Nazis. He's not about to arm the Nazis with weapons that could be used against him and his people. We cut to a scene where Trip and Travis have been tortured and they are in their cell. Uh, Trip is then thrown into the cell. He sort of awakes to look up only to see Silic, the Sulaban, descend on him. And we aren't shown anything else after that. Back on the Enterprise, we have Reed and we have T'Pol as well as Archer. And they're discussing changes in the timeline. We find out about Lenin being assassinated. Because there's no communist Russia, there is no change of regime, the Nazi party don't particularly see them as a threat and don't open up an eastern front. They never try to fully invade Russia at this point. There is a mention that the person who assassinated Lenin suddenly vanished into thin air. Now, when I was there, I didn't see who it was, but I, I thought I heard a transporter beam. But it didn't sound like a usual transporter beam. It must have been something from the future. But they do indeed confirm Daniel's theory. If they can stop Vosk, they can stop the Temporal Cold War. Now again, we're not erasing the Temporal Cold War from existence. They are stopping this divergent timeline, certainly, but they will not be eliminating the Temporal Cold War. It will still have an effect on timelines. This timeline will still exist. Vosk then communicates with the Enterprise and calls up Archer on the device that he was able to take off one of the aliens from the last episode. They agree on a neutral site to give over Trip and Travis as a sign of trust, perhaps. Vosk wants to win Archer over to perhaps benefit from his technology. The Nazi technology is still not advanced enough for Vosk to get home, so he wants to use some of the Enterprise technology, if he can, to speed up the process. They beam down and they meet in this neutral spot just outside of New York and there's a moment where it's Vosk and a few Nazis and obviously the prisoner transport and then you've got Archer with two Makos. Now I would have loved a throwdown scene, you know, after all of the, the great conversation that's about to take place to have seen sort of the Nazis and the Makos go at it toe to toe. Um, it would have been it would have been nice to see a little bit more action at this point, uh, you know, to then be put down by, say, Voss because he's trying to win Archer's trust. But, you know, a bit of a scuffle, you know, old fashioned Nazi fight. Um, <laughs> but uh, to, to have the Makos, these these trained people in future techniques, try and take down a Nazi or two, you know, it's always fun to kick a Nazi, isn't it? At this point, it looks as though it is Trip and Travis. They then get placed over and then beamed up to the Enterprise. And Vosk now tries to make his appeal. He talks about being trapped here. He's from the 29th century, which fits in with all the other things we know about the Temporal Cold War when we get to later episodes in Enterprise. He realises that the Enterprise isn't actually from the Temporal Cold War and that he is being manipulated and that perhaps Temporal agents are messing with Archer. He's trying to sow seeds of doubt but Archer seems much more determined than ever before. He says that the temporal agents, you know, enforce the temporal accords. And Voss tries to say, well yeah of course, I don't agree with it, but they're the tyrants. They're preventing people from using time travel just as you use warp drive. Now that it seems like a gross oversimplification. Warp drive would be the equivalent of, you know, a horse-drawn carriage as opposed to you know, a Boeing 747. 
they're so vastly different technologies. Time travel has such a further impact than simply getting from A to B. There are so many other ripples caused by it. But that's where Vosk slips up. He then says that time travel can be used to improve cultures through careful manipulation. It's those subtle words when it calls back to the parasitic elements in the, the very first bit of this episode where they have the propaganda video. These sentences that carry so much more weight to them when you really think about them. Careful manipulation. So Archer jumps on him at this point and says, who decides the manipulation? How can then you be trusted to make the right calls? They part ways, no shots are fired, as Vosk still thinks that he might be able to make an appeal to Archer. Back on the Enterprise, Archer comes to see both Trip and Travis in the sick bay, and rather than this being sort of a long played out scene of uh, Trip not necessarily being trusted, Phlox straight away picks up that this is Silic, the Sulaban, disguised as Trip. Now to non-Star Trek fans, you're probably wondering how the hell did he do that? One of the other benefits that the Zulaban gained from their future benefactors is the ability to shapeshift and take the form of other people. There's a scuffle as uh, Trip Silic gets found out, a bit of a fight, and then Silic gets shot and passes out. Back on Earth, Alicia and Carmine, who is now in charge of the mob as Sal died in the last episode, um, they he calls out her escape she's returned back down to earth and you know he's wondering you know where did you go you just disappeared after the last time you know he's clearly not you know the dumb sidekick or the henchman he's quite clued into what's going on back on the enterprise Silic comes round and admits that he was spying on Vosk he was trying to get the lay of the land for the facility because he wants to take Vosk down as well so we have Vosk's people we have the temporal agents with Daniels and we also have the Sulban, who are separate interests in this multi-factioned temporal cold war. Back on Earth, we do see Trip is still incarcerated. He's still being locked up in a cell, but he's already figuring out his own escape. Climbs up a pipe, manages to kick some glass out of a, a, a light, and uses the glass to cut himself free. Realising that somehow Silic has got um, plans or copies of what Vosk is trying to do. Vosk wants Silic, and so he starts to call up to the Enterprise, and there is a a standoff, a stalemate between the two. They've got a cannon, and it's very weird to see sort of an alien piece of tech with a Nazi swastika on the side, aimed at the Enterprise, and the Enterprise has his face cannons back down. There's a bit of a firefight, and they sort of play themselves out. The Enterprise can't cut through the shielding that Vosk has placed around his facility. They realise the only way in is to work with Silic and go back down and infiltrate the base. They beam down. Silic is now in sort of a human form as he can sort of transform himself. So he's looking more like the actor portraying Silic. Um, and it, it's quite weird because you're so used to seeing his face in the Silic makeup to then go back to him in human form. Now we have seen Silic in other alien humanoid forms which are closer to the actor but because i'm so used to hearing that voice coming from the silic makeup it, it still has that kind of weird feeling about it but it's great to see him because now we get a little bit of playoff between archer and we see silic and they're finally sort of talking almost as equals before silic always seemed like he had more of the upper hand and this is probably something we're going to find when we get to our proper enterprise rewatch but i always felt like silic was more in control 
They go down, they speak to Carmine and Alicia, they try and convince Carmine, but he's not having any of it. He still doesn't trust Archer, but Alicia does. She's seen the Enterprise, she knows what's at stake. She knows that Archer is in a position to help her. And because she says yes, then Carmine says yes. We now cut to a new scene. Again, it's between Vosk and the uh, German Commandant. This time the Commandant looks as though he's more in charge. He pushes Vosk for a deadline. He wants the uh, squadrons of fighters that are mounted with phase disruptor cannons um, ready to launch straight away. Vosk doesn't want this, but the Commandant overrides him and instantly puts them into action. The time machine isn't ready, but Vosk, once the Commandant is gone, turns to his lead scientist and says, you now have to push for this. You have to make it work. He then starts talking about destiny. And it's a bit of an odd twist for this character. Up till now, as I said, he's, he's very composed, he's very measured in everything he says, and he makes sense. He's very zealous in his mission, his anti-temporal agent mission, and wants to start the Temporal Cold War. And he is a malcontent. But he's never really mentioned anything to make him seem as though he is um, full of grandeur. He doesn't seem as though he is delusional in any way. He sees himself as a righteous man. He has a path. He doesn't just go to that extra grandeur level until this moment. Um, in the earlier scene when he was talking with Archer and Archer was coming back at him and saying, you know, who gets to decide and who dictates the changes in the timeline? You still felt like Vosk was trying to just grab for power. He was just um, looking for a new way. He was fighting the Temporal Cold War um, to gain a sense of power. But you never really thought that he had a high opinion of himself. Now he's talking about destiny. Now he's talking about fate and uh, leaving it into the hands of his, um, his subordinates to just pull off a miracle. And it, it, I don't know whether that's a sense of... Uh, desperation just because in the moment because he knows he needs to get out of here now things are getting more desperate the allies are pushing back so the commandant is taking away the weapons which he didn't want to happen or this is just a part of the character we just haven't seen yet silicon archer have a big debate about human aggression um you know he mentions how you know they've been fighting the zindi and looking at the nazi part of history uh, for human beings silik thinks that he can sort of demean archer by talking about uh, the past history archer sort of deflects this by saying well why are you here what have you got what's your personal stake against vosk and then we find out a little bit more interesting backstory we find out that the vosk's faction actually tried to go back in time and stop suliban from ever existing and they were actually saved by the temporal agents, who Vosk uh, is fighting against, but so are the Suliban. And Archer seems surprised that, if anything, the Suliban should be grateful that the temporal agents saved them. Um, it seems a bit of a naive call by Archer. You know, there's always grey area, there's always something. Just because um, a faction um, who we as the audience would probably side with the temporal agents because they are part of Starfleet, because they are part of you know the temporal accords and and the, the legal side, as it were. Just because you stand against that, um, you know that's that's your opinion, that's your your political stance. Uh, it, it seems very naive to think that just because the temporal agents saved the Sulaban, that all would be forgiven. But you can kind of understand where Archer's coming from in that he has seen Earth 
transformed in a very naive way that when the Vulcans arrived, peace was almost brought to the planet. Obviously, it took a hundred years to get there, but it did change the way humanity treated each other. So maybe the Suliban should do the same. Um, and now this is a general thing for all of Star Trek. This is the hopeful vision for Star Trek that Archer is putting across this idea that, you know, let, live and let live. The Temple Agents helped you once, maybe they're not all bad. It's almost like he is becoming the archetype of the diplomat that we will later see in Pike and Kirk and Picard and we'll see in Cisco and Janeway uh, down the line. Vosk then continues his megalomaniacal rant, as it were. Uh, he's gone on from talking to Destiny, and now he's talking about this inspirational speech about how we are the chosen people, we are going to be leading this temporal Cold War, we are the ones destined for greatness. He has now completely gone over the edge. Uh, he's turned from karma considered, and he has lost the power by raising his voice. As I mentioned in the previous episode, and I think I've alluded to here as well, the character, when he's calm, for me, is far more scarier and far more powerful than when he gets to this point where it, it seems like a ranting rave and he he loses all credibility, for me, at least. We now get uh, the storming of the complex. We've got Carmine's mob army led by Alicia and Carmine and you've got Archer tagging along for the ride with Silic. Now, this sort of put me in mind of the film The Rocketeer. Uh, where you see uh, the mob and the uh, police force uh, teaming up to fight the Nazis uh, over by um, the Griffiths Observatory, uh, just as Timothy Dalton takes off in the Zeppelin. Uh, the idea that you've got these the, the whole scene where you've got this uh, 40, 30s, 40s aesthetic, uh, and they're fighting off against these Nazis that shouldn't be where they are, and it's all out of place. Carmine's saying, you know, we're still hunting Martians, so what's next? The Loch Ness Monster? And he's all about, you know, I'm having way too much fun. There's a whole gunfight. Um, Silic and Archer manage to slip past, and uh, uh, they get to the main gate. They can't get through straight away, so Silic um, oozes his way in through a gap and manages to open the door from the other side. There's a lot more action now. It's a lot less about what the characters are saying. Archer is using the device that he has to take down the shielding so that the Enterprise from orbit or from lower down in orbit, they can then take out the facility, which they couldn't do before. There's a firefight and Silic is then shot and killed. And this is where the character of Silic will bow out. When you're watching Enterprise in full order, at least when I was first watching this episode, this also felt like it was unearned. We had Silic for a handful of episodes. And I think it, even in this episode, it sort of brought out in the earlier conversation between Silic and Archer when he talks about Vosk's people going back in time trying to harm the Suliban. We had a whole great story in just two lines that was never explored, that was never brought to screen. How good would it be if Daniels had somehow brought Archer in on that mission? So we got to, you know, see the Suleiman, we got to get into it, delve into it a bit more. After this, I think we get probably my favourite CGI scene in most of Enterprise, as we see the Enterprise coming over the Earth, as it's moving from orbit down towards New York. We see this pretty shot as, as the sun is, is over the horizon of Earth as it's just coming into the atmosphere. 
As it's coming in, communications are lost, so Archer can't talk to them just at this point. And Trip emerges, who has now broken out of his cell. Uh, remember him? <laughs> uh, way back when, when he was cutting himself free with all the glass, he seemed to have been forgotten most of the episode. But here he is. He has a gun in hand, and he's pointing it at Archer, thinking it's Silic, only to see Silic's dead body on the floor. The Enterprise now comes right above New York and is flying through the buildings. And I love this scene. It's so cheesy. It's so overdone. It's so cheap in the special effects. Again, going over to the Command and Conquer reference that I made in the last episode. It, it, it looks so dated, but seeing the Enterprise flying over buildings and uh, going through these recognisable landmarks of New York, um, it's just so fantastic to see the, the, the phasers firing, and you've got like, and you've got like a, a camera that's supposed to be mounted on the side of the hull and is showing all the phase cannons firing off. I'm not usually a big one for the firefights, you know. I come to Star Trek for the philosophy, but every now and then there's a good shot like that, and I really do love it. The Enterprise destroys the facility just as Vosk is about to step through the time machine which he thinks is going to work a vortex has opened up he's stepped inside and as the Enterprise fires its photonic torpedoes into the complex blowing it up having Archer and Trip escape everything falls apart and Vosk screams from inside the vortex because he knows he's lost in the most typical villain way possible No. Uh, it's just awful. <laughs> it's so horrible and cliche. Um, you know, I don't normally hold it against it. You know, cliche is a nice shorthand sometimes for an episode, but to have him say no, uh, it's it just makes me think of the other franchise with the star in in the name, uh, with a, a character called Darth Vader. Uh, but there you go. We then pause time, as it were, and Daniels emerges with Archer. They're in this sort of swirling mix of what we assume is the timelines, but I've never seen anything like that, even from inside this bubble. Now, the reason I'm including this in this part of the episode and not saying that it's outside time is that Daniels is making definitive reference to the timeline resetting. It's almost like time has been paused and he's waiting for it to repair itself. It's, he's been put into some sort of status. So I'm guessing that as the facility blows up, as Vosk dies inside the vortex, time has paused. Now, I did think maybe I should just put this as a separate episode, but it's such a short scene. I'm going to put it at the end here because it's still part and parcel of the whole thing. You witness lots of history, almost like TV screens flowing through time, and you're seeing things popping out of existence, the altered timeline popping out of existence. But Daniel says that it's almost ready. And because of that, I'm not putting that as happening, like time is changing around them. It's just that time has stopped, it's repairing himself, and then he's going to place the Enterprise back into its normal time. So I am saying that this is still 1944, but in a frozen second of time, as it were. Now, the timeline adjusting and repairing itself and disappearing. As I've been saying the whole way through this, Time travel just simply doesn't work that way. By going through time, this timeline does exist. Now, Daniels may have the ability to move the Enterprise back to the normal timeline that exists, and that will still exist as well. Their prime timeline, as it were. But this timeline will still exist. There will still be an America that was invaded by the Nazis. There will still be a Europe that was conquered by the Nazis. There will still be Russia 
as my counterpart can attest to, who will help liberate that Europe eventually. They will have access to alien technology far in advance of what was available in 1940s. They will have a completely different timeline. They have not been erased from time. Despite what Archer is seeing, despite what Daniels is telling us, when we really look at time travel, that's not what's happening. All it means is that this timeline is no longer part and parcel of the Enterprise story. We're going to move Enterprise back to its prime timeline and forget it ever happened. Daniels discusses the reset, and Archer very indignantly just says, I'm done with your temporal cold war, just leave us alone and return my ship home. Daniels is a bit deflated by this, but he understands what's going on. Daniels has interfered so many times with Archer and the Enterprise crew that it's kind of hard to argue against what Archer wants. He just wants to go home. He spent a year fighting the Zindi War, and now he's just had to do this. And we stop at 40 minutes, 27 seconds. That's a lot of episode. As you can see, had to split it into two episodes just to fit it all in. But we have located our point in time, the 1944, but in an alternate universe. My doppelganger's just disappeared. Um, the device is saying swipe right? Huh, looks like I've made it back to my timeline too. So... We've located the point in time, now comes continuity. Well, this is all about continuity. And for me, it establishes that there is a brand new timeline, a brand new universe. For our timeline, for the prime timeline, as it were, if we were going to use the jargon, I don't see any impact. There is nothing that changes about Starfleet, other than the fact that they are aware that this other universe will exist. Now, according to Daniels, it has been reset. It doesn't exist anymore. So... As far as Starfleet is concerned, it doesn't exist anymore. But as we know, that's not how time works. This universe is still out there. Maybe, as we're watching other episodes of Star Trek in the far-flung future of this podcast, there'll be discrepancies, things that don't seem to match up between the two. Maybe they're happening in this timeline. Who knows? Alterations. I've alluded to a few things. Uh, one, I would like better special effects, but as you know, I don't hold special effects against this series. Otherwise, I'd be constantly complaining about the animated series and TOS, as far as the old special effects are concerned. But because this was the early 2000s, you expect a little bit more than that. You know, this is the same time that Firefly was just taken off the air, and they had fantastic special effects for such a small budget as well. Couldn't they have done just a little bit more, something a little bit better? There are some really great moments, such as when the Enterprise is flying low in orbit over Earth, and I really like that moment. But it's just undercut by the really bad command-and-conquer look of everything. So in alterations, yeah, I would have liked maybe just a little bit more work done on some of the special effects. But as far as the story is concerned, and that's really what this rating criteria is all about, there is so much more that could have been done with the Temporal Cold War. I've said it so many times in this episode, I apologise for being a broken record. But the Sulaban were a great enemy with a great premise who just weren't explored. And in one line of dialogue, we got an entire story that could have been, you know, the story of introducing Vosk and the Sulaban. Vosk is another thing I would have liked to have seen uh, introduced as well. 
Now, I've got my problems with the Zindi arc, and as much as I enjoyed the third season, I saw it was a vast improvement on what had come before, I still felt that because the Temporal Cold War had been brought into it, that needed to be the focus of an overarching season-long story plot. The Temporal Cold War could have been so much more. So, personally, as alterations, I would love to have seen this expanded. I want to see the Suleban story. I want to see Vosk's story. I want to see what happens with Alicia and Carmine. You know, let's go back to that universe. It doesn't have to be mirror universes every time we travel to a parallel universe. What happened to Alicia? Did she help cement the new revolution that brought back America? Uh, did she fight the resistance and, and liberate the rest of uh, the American continent? with the assistance of the Allies still on the western side of America. There's so much more ripe plucking for stories. We move on to recommendations. To Star Trek fans, to non-fans, and to the godlike entities for importance. To Star Trek fans, it's Nazis in space again. Now, to non-fans, you don't know what I'm talking about, but this isn't the only time we have space Nazis. Um... It's it's an engaging episode. Watching through it again, having not watched it for a good couple of years, it does draw you in. It's one of those plots, those what-if plots, the ones you see in Man in the High Castle, uh, Fatherland, all of those, you know, what if the, the Nazis won World War II kind of stories. That does kind of bring you in, but it's such an overplayed trope, that's my problem with it. And I don't feel that this is really the way I would have wanted the Temporal Cold War to go out. Something as grand on scope as a Temporal Cold War with war across timelines and parallel universes. Why didn't we get that? Why did we go back to the trope of having to have space Nazis? Um, for that reason, I think I'm not going to recommend this episode to Star Trek fans. There's some great moments, there's some great scenes, there's some great dialogue, the, the discussion between Archer and Vosk about who decides the outcome of a race, you know, careful manipulation, all those uh, subtle words to, to hide your real sort of prejudices, but ultimately it doesn't really deliver on something meaty. I wanted more, and that's my big problem with it. So to Star Trek fans, I'm not going to recommend this to non-Star Trek fans. Now, you don't know about Space Nazis. You don't know that's coming up. Or maybe you do, and you're kind of aware of it. Maybe you've seen, you know, images of when Kirk and Spock went to the Space Nazi planet. Or maybe you know what happens in Voyager, that sort of thing. But overall, I think to a non-Star Trek fan, but perhaps who likes science fiction, they might get into this because they might like things like The Man in the High Castle, because of Fatherland, those what-if stories, because it's not all lasers and spaceships and it's more period in its appeal. Maybe that has an appeal to a sci-fi but non-Star Trek fan. To a non-fan, you're trying to you know, create the, the brainwashing kit, as I've always been saying. Again, it still doesn't deliver. There's so many unanswered questions. This whole Temporal Cold War you have never heard of yet. If you're watching in order as this podcast is showing, it doesn't make any sense to you. Um, even when it's placed in its proper viewing, uh, when you're going through Enterprise, it still doesn't quite make sense. Like, Why was this the episode to bring back Season 4? It still doesn't quite make any sense. To the non-Star Trek fans, I'm afraid I'm not going to recommend either. Now to the godlike entities. 
We've created an entirely new timeline. That's a pretty big thing. But if we're looking for continuity, if we're looking for importance on a grand scale, does this change how Starfleet operates? Does this change how the Federation is created? Uh, admittedly, maybe if you're accepting Daniel's interpretation, the Federation never existed because everything was changed, because the Nazis won or were winning World War Two. No, <laughs> uh, you know everything's reset at the end. It doesn't matter in the end. Ultimately, Archer goes home, and we never speak of it again. So, to me, there's no grand importance, and is not of interest or recommendation to the godlike entities. And so, finally, that brings me on to my last criteria: S for setup. Join me next time as we go over to Deep Space Nine, season four little green men and we are going to 1947 and the device is telling me it's roswell new mexico i can't think of what's happening there we're going to timestamp 14 minutes 12 seconds thank you very much for listening i'm going to see you in my original time stream if you'd like to contact the show there's now a twitter account search temporal trek podcast at rider underscore coattail Or contact me directly at hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore hitch underscore writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free. There's no Patreon at all. But if you wish to financially contribute to the show... Feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream.